Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luhr, and we're crossing the globe again today, all the way to Austin, Texas, to connect with my fellow sports entrepreneur here, Mark Pennis. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thank you for having me, Marcus. Yeah, I'm looking forward to a good hour here with you and not just taking a really deep dive into your amazing career across the globe, really, but also, of course, touching on some you know recent happenings around the world, which fit very well with your own career in football in Europe. And of course, the European Super League, which has you know been on everyone's radar, or many people's radar at least, uh, over the last you know week or so. So we've got plenty of stuff to cover, and I want to do just a bit of quick introduction for some of the folks who might not know you. You're originally from Boston, but uh, studied in Texas, in Austin, Texas, which is where you are right now as well, at UT as a fellow uh, Texas graduate from TCU. Um, we've always had a good rivalry there with uh, with UT during those days. So mm -hmm. I have fond memories of that. You're also a fellow uh, lecturer now at, at UT, which is cool. We'll maybe we'll touch on it yep. a bit later. Yeah, I'm a teaching but, fellow. Yeah. And, uh, and so, but what I'd like to use as well, sort of just Austin as a city is such a great uh, metaphor, I think, for your own career, because it obviously is well known for UT, especially for the, you know, football team there. And, and you know, but it also now in around the world would probably most people would would probably recognize for Formula One, right? That's probably the biggest high profile event there mm -hmm. in the world of sports happening every year. And now with Miami, of course, coming on stream, uh, you know, it might take a little bit of shine off there. But, uh, you know, Austin has done you know great job hosting the races there the last few years and and i think your career has a bit of that as well right you started in the us and then of course spend a, you know a large chunk of your time in europe on with on right. different uh, projects there so we're going to do a little bit of crisscrossing around the globe here and and have some fun with that your career really started in the us uh, with the new york knicks and we're going to touch on that you had then a sting with a team and a basketball team in europe you spent a couple of years with HSBC, uh, again, and the sports marketing role there. And then, of course, many folks would know you from AS Roma as CEO for several years. And then you sort of came back to the U.S. and, and started your own enterprise and, and a few other things. So we're going to dip into all those things. Um, and as we always do, we go straight to the frontier. And that is coming out of uh, UT and your first role there with the Knicks, uh, which later on you know became the chief marketing officer. But I'm assuming that's not wasn't probably your first role coming out of college. So, how did it all start with uh, with the Knicks and and how you got from Texas into New York? Well, thanks for that introduction, Marcus. It's great to <laughs> be with you. I've uh, I've loved listening to the podcast. You've had some amazing guests, so I hope I can uh, contribute to the rich tradition you've put together so far. Um, I'm sure you will. So I actually, I think, take a step back from that and say, when I was in high school in the early and mid 1980s, I wanted to, to have a career in professional sports. And at the time, uh, and even still today, the University of Texas's uh, sports program was uh, was the top sports program in the United States. So, um, so right. I actually came to UT, not as an athlete, but as someone who's going to work on the business side of, uh, okay. of, of the sport, of the business. And... Um, and I ended up working with the basketball team while I was down here and, and partly that into an opportunity to uh, get an internship with the New York Knicks. So right. I did a summer with the Knicks working on the communications team, uh, which was great. It was a great opportunity uh, in one of the world's biggest media markets um, to understand or to start to see how the, you know, the call and response and kind of the ecosystem uh, that uh, lives around a professional uh, professional team in a major market. 
went back to school for a year, uh, finished up a, an honors program uh, where I actually did a, did a thesis on um, collective bargaining in sports, the crisis collective bargaining that happens in North okay. American sports between players associations, the trade union and, uh, right. and the leagues. And then from there, went back to the Knicks and started uh, doing marketing for the Knicks. Right. I had a, an operations role. I was uh, responsible for making sure that everything that was happening on game day would get executed. And Madison Square Garden is a, is a very unique building. At the time, there were 19 different trade unions operating in that building. Wow. And, uh, and so I was able to, to learn an awful lot um, about really working with just a large array of groups that had very defined roles. And in order to do anything new or innovative, you really had to have uh, built up relationships and trust with those groups because uh, they didn't have to do anything that wasn't prescriptively in their mm. em employment agreement. Uh, as a as a as a unit as a union, so right, um, right. so it's a great place to cut my teeth. Interesting, you yeah, know. Uh, I mean, look. Now, this is where just to give people or the listeners a sense, we're talking the 1990s here, right? You you spent about 10 That's years right. almost with the Knicks, uh, 1992 about 2000. So now I have to maybe I should have checked it, but uh, you tell me how what, where was the team at that time? Um, was it uh, Patrick Ewing time and and uh, yeah. the Knicks were flying high, or where was the team at you know sort of uh, from a playing level? So when I was. In, um, when it was an intern, the, the, the team had come off a, a decade where they had, uh, they had drafted Patrick Ewing, you know, one of the iconic players of all time. Um, nice. And they had had um, um, very mixed success, not real success. There was an expectation that they should have been much better uh, than, they, uh, than they had been during his, uh, the initial part of his career. Um, mm. I, I, uh, in the interim year that I went, that I went back to, <clears throat> to University of Texas, the club hired Pat Riley who had won right. um, a number of titles uh, with the, uh, with the, coach. With the uh, Los Angeles Lakers. And uh, so when I came back, it was, uh, it was Mr. Riley's first year. And, um, and that led to a decade long run of uh, the second round of the playoffs or better every year, including two finals appearances, including a loss in a game seven in 1994. That was in Chicago. Right? What was it? Chicago eliminated us six times in that decade, actually. Oh, and, yeah, yeah, I do remember. There was obviously a big rivalry with yeah. Michael Jordan there. And, yeah, and, but it was uh, Houston. So, it was Houston. We yeah. lost game seven in Houston. All right. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of the time, obviously, where I was studying in the in, in at TCU. So my, I graduated there in 94. So I do probably remember watching some of that on TV while you were there working. That's awesome. Um, now, tell us, before we sort of move a bit on, of course, into, into other parts of your career, um, you know, at the end of the day, you were the chief marketing marketing officer, VP of marketing mm -hmm. there, um, and that means you know, I'm assuming is go find me the money, right? Um, what were yes. you guys doing at that time? And you know, being of course in New York, Madison Square Garden, and the Knicks, you know, being a big team, you know, what is it what you guys do different than uh, you know, or if you're looking back now, what you were doing in the '90s compared to maybe what people do now? Well, the structure I think was it's it's important to understand. Um, the structure that was in place at the time. So Madison Square Garden was and is in effect, but was certainly at the time a vertically integrated company. So that means that it owned the facility, the the, the arena Madison Square Garden. It owned the clubs that played there, the New York Knicks um, yep. and the New York Rangers of the NHL. And then ultimately right. the uh, New York Liberty of the WNBA. 
it also owned its own broadcast network, MSG Network. And MSG Network was far and away, um, you know, the 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 engine from a revenue standpoint. And and indeed, Marcus, as you know so well, and your audience will know so well, you know, media is the, you know, unparalleled engine that drives revenue in professional yeah. sports. It just is. And so our sales for the clubs were centralized. The sales force was centralized through Madison Square Garden Network. Uh, and and that meant that it was uh, it was media led first, which it should have been right. absolutely, but packages were always sold uh, comprehensively across you know entertainment properties, the venue itself, and the sports teams. And so, if you're sitting there with in the most valuable sports property as the Knicks were at the time, the issue that you had was we would never we felt we never got full value because we were being used as a leverage point. If you want to buy Knicks, well, then you need to buy tennis that was coming in or boxing okay. or you know we need a partnership for our concert series um you need to be buying television time on um whatever that was right, running okay so you guys so were the bait we we were certainly the bait and and uh and uh from a physical property standpoint now at that point msg also had msg network right. also had the yankees so the yankees had 162 games and were pretty dominant in the 90s i want to say one mm. maybe um may have been as many as four World Series in that period. So they're driving cash at the network level is number one with, but the, we didn't, MSG didn't own the Yankees. So for the in-house properties, we were the marquee property. Um, and oftentimes we just felt that, you know, the we were being bundled in. So I, as mm -hmm. I transitioned from commercial operations um, into, more of a commercial role, uh, I proposed we create a partnerships group specifically for the team, for the New York Knicks. Right. And uh, and we started selling everything that was non-media related that had effectively been undersold. Um, and this is an era where, you know, premium items were emerging um, uh, as something that, you know, wouldn't be a once a year or twice a year uh, phenomenon, but something you were trying to do every game, perhaps even mm -hmm. doing different ones for your premium seating. We had a number of opportunities in the building to enhance people's experience, um, and uh, and we took advantage of it. And we we ended up, you know, in the first year, we were generating almost an additional four million dollars in revenue, which at the time the top line revenue for the team was about one hundred and twenty million. So you know, I it was, was, it was, I was just going to ask. Uh, yeah, oh, okay. It started to move the needle. Piece of money, right? Yeah, for a startup, basically. And when I say a startup, I mean you know it was it was, uh, it was me. I had one salesperson, and we put together an operational staff, and off mm -hmm. we went. And um, and and of course, what that did is it also brought in um, advertisers or, or partners who main who wanted media, and so it actually helped contribute to the larger sales engine that was uh, was MSG Network. Interesting. So, you know, so the CMO role was a more of a, let's say, sales role, or was it really also doing marketing in a more traditional sense? What, what was really, what, what was sort of the remit here? Yeah. So it's, <clears throat> it's interesting because, uh, you know, for the biggest clubs, there is this, this, always this debate, are you a sales driven organization or are you a brand driven organization? Um, mm. And the reality is you need to be a, a top club from a market standpoint, from, um, you know, uh, a historic success standpoint, um, and, and just your place within whatever league you're playing in, in order to be a brand driven club. Right. Um, and so the Knicks were one of those clubs and that allowed us to be much more strategic in, in our sales process and making sure that everything tied in directly 
to the longer term brand architecture that we had we had uh, built over the 90s for the club. If you're a small market club um, and you don't have a great history of success, the bottom line is you have to be sales driven. You have to take every dollar that walks in the door um, or, or that you go and knock or, you know, on every door you knock on because you just need to generate that revenue. But as, as if you're a bigger club and have more stature, you have the ability to have sales work for you to continually reinforce the value of your brand. And so we were brand driven. So it was very much a brand and classic marketing um, role. It was also uh, a time when um, new media was emerging. And so there was a whole digital aspect to this sure. that was starting. And then the third thing was, um, I'd say the third leg of the stool was uh, just CRM, like customer relationship management was uh, was something people talked about a lot, um, but really hadn't started to implement it in a proper way. Uh, in the same way, I think that people are talking about the usage of, uh, of the next iteration of that generationally, which is, you know, everyone talks about data today, but not many mm -hmm. people are, um, are actually able to, to execute on the possibilities that data provides. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Now, as I say, before we move on, maybe one quick deal, but one big deal sort of which comes to your mind, which you guys brokered um, with the team, which, you know, you sort of you're proud of. Well, we had a, um, any number of pretty large groundbreaking deals. I think one of them that I thought was, was dynamite is uh, we did a deal that brought uh, American Express in for the first time to do a co-branded card. Uh, oh, okay. It was a, a multi-year deal. It was multi-millions every year. Um, and again, you know, you're going back a significant amount of time and these categories and then these numbers today don't seem large, but at the time they were certainly, um, they were certainly yeah. league leading. So it's, it's an affinity card program, basically. What we're talking about. It, it was an affinity card program for sure. Mm -hmm. But what it did is it allowed us, you know, at the time Amex was uh, certainly positioned as a, as a much more rarefied card offering right. than MasterCard or Visa or Diners Club, which I think still still had uh, had some legs in that era. And so to mm. bring them in, you know, to get them to partner with us and the Rangers to do co-branded cards uh, yeah. for, it were, was, uh, was significant. It also overlaid so well yeah. with the, uh, the card membership in New York City. And it allowed us to drive any number of other business opportunities off the back of that uh, with yeah, marquee brands like Mercedes, for example. You know, we we literally used the um, the MX deal as as a platform to then do a very significant Mercedes deal as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm a big fan of them. I, uh, we've done a couple here in Asia too, with with uh, big you know sports IP and then uh, local banks in Asia, and and I do think that hey, they work right because you mm -hmm. can have you have direct revenue. You know, you have it's very easy to track the revenue against it, so everyone can see what's working, what's not working, and um, you know, and certain brands like Ferrari and others have done a really good job. Uh, promoting that over the years for sure good stuff um let, let's skip let's move on a little bit here and, and i want to sort of just uh, spend sort of a couple of minutes on your first I would, what i would sort of call look like at least um what was it you know you spent you know three four years there um as ceo and founder uh, yep. what were you guys doing so um while i was while i was at the knicks i um i went to law school nights uh, mm -hmm. in the mid uh mid 90s at fordham which was in midtown and, uh, and, and had an itch to do, um, uh, uh, you know, a broader range of things than just the marketing uh, and revenue generating side. Very grateful that I started doing the communication side, even more grateful that I had the revenue generating piece of this. But I felt it was a broader remit. Um, I left uh, with the 
chief marketing officer for Radio City and MSG itself. Um, mm-hmm. A woman named Pam Harris, who's a super talented, uh, you know, one of the all-time great brand marketeers, um, certainly in, uh, in in pro sports. And uh, and we opened the shop, and it was about uh, helping brands drive, really drive revenue, and also do some significant consulting on how to operationalize systems so they could drive revenue better. And and uh, we worked with with companies that were um, some media companies. We worked with Time Inc. We worked with. Um, um, life worked in style magazine, um, to help optimize them. We also worked with, uh, the Texas Rangers. We worked with the Dallas stars. Uh, we did right. horse racing. Um, we also worked with USTA tennis and, and, um, it was interesting because if you take someone like the USTA, the U S open was supposedly sold out. Right. But the reality was mm-hmm. they had about 40,000 tickets that were unsold over the course of the fortnight, that two week period, and they had a $30 per cap, right? So just getting people into the, into the event, uh, meant there was a significant revenue opportunity for them, but they also didn't want to be positioned as having available tickets. So it was really about how to unlock a market, um, for those tickets without really showcasing, um, that uh that there were thousands of yeah 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 Yeah, you create that uh, scarcity uh, obviously Mm -hmm. object and i've been to the open several times and you're right it it always has that appearance that it's impossible to get a ticket for it but i guess there's always some left right uh interesting uh it's an interesting one so you know coming out of you know what you were doing obviously there uh in in your new business um you then moved uh you know you you started working with the paris basketball holdings uh, which is a u.s holding group for for a team in in europe how did that happen Uh, talk us through that well uh you know the company we founded skilo brand was uh was again um a product that came in to existence in 2000 and um and it gave us just you know that was right when the tech crash within a year the tech boom crashed, the bubble popped. And so it gave us an opportunity to do a lot of different um, types of projects. Uh, and one of which uh, about four years in was um, we were approached by an NBA player who wanted to uh, join his, uh, his new young star, new NBA star, who was a European mm-hmm. um, to go back and buy the club that he had, uh, he had matured, you know, his academy club. It was right. in Paris. So we said, okay, Marquis City, fantastic. Let's see if we can help you acquired this asset. And this, again, gave me an opportunity to do things beyond, um, I think, the straight vertical of um, of the marketing side of it and the revenue side. And I think, Marcus, that's one thing I've always tried to do in my career is that I've worn a number of different hats, whether it's an attorney or a banker or general management uh, or a marketeer or, you know, or partnership sales or commercial ops, but they've all had sports as the through line uh, through them. And so this was a great opportunity to go into a different, um, a different part of the business. Um, I built the business plan, was structured. Um, the deal did the negotiate now final negotiations in Paris, as a matter of fact, closed on the deal. And then they asked me to go join them. And, um, as the CEO of, of the newly formed polling company, and then as the MD on the ground, um, the NBA player was Tony Parker. He was uh, just finishing, I believe a second year in the NBA. So he was just, playing for Senate. Yes. San Antonio Spurs. Right, got it. And, and yeah, cool. He just won a title, so he's very popular, and uh, and so I went and did that for uh, for two and a half years. Yeah, yeah awesome. So looking at uh, you know, your, your couple of years there in Paris, uh, your next up then was London. 
Um, so how do you get from, you know, again, being in the world of basketball, now all of a sudden you with HSBC, um, global director of sports, of the sports group, and you spent about five years there. So, you know, moving again, very much from the, uh, you know, I guess, brand side into the client side, you know, or the, or the customer side here, working with, you know, one of the big banks in the world, which spends a lot of money in sports, of course. So uh, I'm sure that must have been an interesting role. Talk us a bit about, talk a bit about that. Sure. So when I was in Paris, um, the club was chronically undercapitalized and it was not, um, I want to be very clear, it was not uh, Tony Parker's fault. Other members of the ownership group, basically it's a very common story as we know in sports, um, claimed they were going to put in a significant amount of capital to drive, you know, to complete the turnaround and get the club going. We had made mm. really significant strides in Paris. We had uh, increased ticket sales about 300%. We were, we were back um, in the uh, LNB playoffs, we were playing in Europe. So uh, the club was had been turned around um, at, a, at the initial level, you know, in a turnaround, it's really like a cleanup stage, then there's like yep. a building block stage, and then there's a growth stage, right. And so we had done the cleanup. Um, but again, we're undercapitalized. Um, and so I spent a ton of my time, um, uh, frankly, dealing with uh, finance issues that at that point, Again, I, I was an attorney and I had all the commercial sides of the business, but I really didn't have a finance piece of, of um, a set of tools that I could I could deploy. So mm -hmm. I approached HSBC Private Bank and pitched them on, on setting up uh, a sports practice um, that would bank athletes and institutions globally in sports. And oh, right. uh, so this was not, I was not on the... Um, not on the commercial side on this in terms of marketing or sales. I was, I was uh, literally running a banking group and uh, okay. initially the, you know, the focus was the UK. Mm -hmm. It quickly spread out. And within five years um, we had about 500 athletes um, across the global footprint of HSBC, you know, massive global clearing bank. And, uh, and we were operating on four different continents. Cool. Now let's let's dig a bit deeper here. Um, explain a bit about what it actually means. You know, what were you exactly doing with athletes or with IP owners, and and how were you banking them? Sure. So uh, HSBC Private Bank at that time in the mid two thousands was a was a bit of an anomaly. It was really most private banks are focused on asset management. It was really a wealth creation. Uh, shop of a different nature. It was focused on credit, and it was really about um, helping people who have assets uh, borrow against them. And so right. it was all bespoke lending. It was a great place to learn uh, what a group of super sophisticated bankers there were. Then it was just starting up the asset management piece in London, because uh, as you know, HSBC with its global footprint had asset management in Asia, it had it in Switzerland, Monaco, right. Luxembourg. Uh, and so there hadn't been the thought previous to that had been, well, we'll just have our clients do their asset management in a different location. Um, as banking laws were tightened up after the um, after the financial crisis of uh, uh, originally of 2000, 2001, you know, the, the tech bubble bursting. And there was a move to greater transparency as well. Um, it became um, important to have the asset management piece on the ground in the UK. And so that part was being built up. And what we, we really did is we focused from an institutional standpoint on asset management. So we had some governing bodies. We had um, 
uh, events that were quite significant in stature um, where they would throw off cash, you know, they were profitable with rough cash on, a, on an annual basis. And we would um, help put together portfolios to manage that. On the athlete side, it was really about, frankly, athletes um, doing um, uh, lending against uh, what we call COI, right? Contractually ob- obligated, obligated income. income. Got yeah. it. Okay. And, 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 and were you doing wealth management for them as well, or that wasn't really? The yeah, we meant? would we would do wealth management for them. I mean, the reality is, uh, for the bulk of uh, of athletes at a time, I mean, uh, football salaries in in the main had not um, spiked to, to the levels they were now by any means, and so a lot of athletes, you know, um, you you acquire them as clients early in their career because they've got a significant amount of COI. Um, uh, but they're living basically off cash flow, and uh, yeah. and early in their career, you know, they don't really make money in their first contract as a professional. You typically, you're halfway through your second contract um, um, when you really start to to cash flow, where you can put some of that in the bank and and invest it. Because prior to that, you know, the the first first contract, you're like you, you're you know you're buying. A house for yourself, maybe a house for your parents. So you, you know, you're buying some cars. Second contract, you're going to upgrade on the property. You might switch countries. You might switch clubs. So there's a there's a significant mm-hmm. amount of spending, and only then, you know, in like if the second deal is a three year deal, only as you you know round into the second half of the second year, do you really start to accumulate some assets. And so we absolutely did wealth management, particularly F1 drivers. We had uh, multiple F1 drivers in um, F1 champions in our. Yeah. In our group, we had um, you know people with a longer tail, tennis and golf. We're doing a lot more asset management. A lot of the footballers and rugby men, it was um, uh, it was lending. Uh, interesting. Okay, and you mentioned what you had 500, 500 athletes. So that's pretty much across the globe, then, um, or was yes. that still a bit more Europe focused? No, that was across the globe. I mean, HSBC had a tremendous amount of um, sports business across. You know, at the time, it, it had probably 350,000 employees. And so it really was a global, uh, it had a global footprint. And right. it had a number of uh, athletes as clients within there or sports organizations as clients within there. But it right. didn't have anyone coordinating that and pulling that together, sharing best practices, you know, rolling out new insurance products that um, that could be used in multiple jurisdictions. Hmm. Um, and and so that's what uh, uh, the, gro- the group I founded, the Global Sports Group, that's what we did. Right, right, right. Oh, cool. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I thought you were on the marketing front, but that's a, that's a very different part of the business, and uh, but a very interesting part. I, I like that. Um, yeah, you know, because as you said, you know, HSBC was a big sponsor in golf, so I'm assuming there, sure. you know, there's some nice overlap between golfers, the guys are playing there, and and then the services you guys would be, uh, you know, promoting. I'm sure that you have spent a bit of time in the uh, in the VIP lounges there, <laughs> hanging out there. <laughs> that's, that that, if, like if, a, if that's where the uh, where the agents are and uh, and the athletes. Are, then that's what we're going to be for sure. Exactly. You know, sounds like a fun role there. Um, anyway, and I, I, like you said, it's it's another level of learning, I guess, right? Working then within this sort of financial setup there and, and the structures there, and um, sure. and again, even today, if you think of it, um, what what uh, this whole the whole new lending going on there in sports now, particularly right with the current crisis, uh, the banks are really deep in it. So I'm sure you have a, have an interesting appreciation. Now, what, what I was going to ask as well before we move on here is, is obviously you were there during that. 
global, you know, this, the big global financial crisis, 2008 and nine, you were in the bank. I mean, what, mm -hmm. you know, did you, what was happening? What did you see, you know, from your perspective of being at a bank in this role you were in there? Um, what well, did you see what was happening? You know, it was, uh, it was funny in the middle of that, I remember speaking with my mother and uh, uh, on the phone and uh, at the time bankers were being vilified many rightly. So, yep. and uh, earlier on when I was uh, just leaving school, I had an opportunity uh, to go into um, work with a boxing promoter and I ended up going to work with the Knicks. And I said, I said to my mom, um, who would have thought between boxing and banking that boxing would be considered the more honorable profession these days. <laughs> but um, it was a, it was a, it was a, a, you know, a fraught time for sure. Um, in 08, um, in October of 08, uh, two things happened pretty much in the same, you know, fortnight, uh, which was, which I found amazing and something I've, I've never forgotten. One was HSBC was one of a handful of banks that um, stopped interbank lending. So mm -hmm. for those of you who aren't, aren't bankers, um, uh, LIBOR is the London interbank uh, overnight rate. And so what happens right. is banks lend to each other to make sure that they all have enough liquidity. You're waiting for a payment to come in in two days, but you've just loaned a whole bunch of money out today. You may need some coverage. So, so that's how banks do interbank right. lending, keep stability in the system. As institutions started to fail, HSBC was one of a handful of banks and we just, we can't do interbank lending. We don't know that we'll get the money back. So that led to the contagion that froze the financial markets. Um, and literally within days of that, Richard Scudamore landed 4% increases for the Premier League um, for the next round of meteorites. Uh, so uh, not flat, up a little bit, certainly not down. And certainly he, he could have postponed. He had a year. He could have postponed, but he didn't. And he just showed the enduring value to me of... Uh, of sports media rights that in an audience erosion environment, and we've been in that for, you know, 30 years in, in broadcast media, um, that yep. sports really had uh, an enduring value. And, um, and so 08 and 09 were difficult, you know, HSBC did not take any public um, uh, support um, to like no bank bailouts uh, uh, because they had managed their balance sheet very, very well, super conservative. But the issue you have, when you're conservative and then things go wrong and you're proving correct is you become more conservative, right? Mm -hmm. You don't become, at that point, you don't say, woo, here's all this opportunity, let's start lending money. So it actually was a difficult period for our practice uh, along with you know anyone else on the lending side because um, the bank didn't have appetite for doing a lot of lending in that period. And so we had to be very creative in the way we structured deals and we had to make sure that, um, that they were, you know, they were very sound, from the amount of security we were taking from um, from our clients. And so that led to more complexity. So deals became more complex, they were slower, um, but it, but again, as a, as a learning uh, environment, it was really, really difficult to beat. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, well, I mean, it was a crazy time and, and being in a bank, I'm sure, uh, you know, you, again, you, you have a, even a different perspective than what we all had, uh, you know, watching it from the outside. So. Uh, yeah, it was some crazy years. Uh, now moving on along here and nicely, um, you know, so we're now around 2011 here. Um, you know, the banking crisis is nicely over. You know, the world is a little more back to normal, um, and you end up joining the the Raptors Accelerator Group here um, as the managing director back to the U.S. Uh, in the Austin office. Uh, and uh, you know, I guess Raptor is is uh, part of the James Palotta Group, right? The American which is, billionaire. It's his family office, yep. 
Right. Um, so talk us through that a bit, because that obviously then leads into, you know, what we're going to be talking after, and that is football in Europe, uh, sure. you know, with AS Roma. But uh, I guess you were first um, in Austin here. So, um, you know, we had, uh, uh, I met my lovely bride at, uh, at U Texas, um, and we had then lived together in New York. So we, we left Austin in 91, had lived in New York, then had gone overseas for basically a decade. So um, uh, we have children. I have three, mm-hmm. three lovely kids, and we're we're looking to get back to the states for a stretch, not necessarily permanently, but just to have them live in the states for a bit. And so, uh, I was approached about joining um, another longtime sports industry professional, Sean Barr, and uh, and forming a, a JV with uh, with Jim Pilata and opening Raptor Accelerator. And uh, Raptor Group wanted to have a presence in Austin, so we said perfect. So we came back to Austin, and I I set up. Um, the Raptor Group office down here, and almost immediately, you know, Jim Plata uh, invested in Roma as a limited passive investor, and so um, I was the person in the group that had international sports experience, and I started working on um, on that project early right. on. It had an initial, uh, as Roma had an initial general partner who uh, was not properly capitalized. Um, to be candid. And so what ended up happening is uh, uh, Jim took over really in a four month period out of necessity, Jim took over as first the, um, uh, he went from a limited passive investor to limited active investor to the, uh, to the general partner. And so right. I, I, we had uh, the bank Unicredit had, uh, had stayed in as a shareholder. They had taken it over from the Sensi family rather than allow the club to be put into administration, which would have led to, significant point penalties and probably relegation and and wiped out a significant amount of value in that asset. And so mm. um, they were a partner of ours and uh, and uh, Raptor and uh, and the bank jointly um, appointed me as CEO to run the club. All right, awesome. Well, let's, let's you know, and, and I want to spend a little more time now here on Anais Roma. Um, a, it fits so perfectly, of course, with what happened this week here with the, uh, you know, European Super League. And we'll, we'll touch on that, of course. And, and your thoughts as, again, an American sports executive who understands the, the American closed system versus the European system, um, you know, being a, being then eventually being the CEO of, of, the, of AS Roma. But before we get there, let, let's just, just unpuzzle a little bit what's going on here. Uh, it was, uh, you know, uh, Jim's, uh, uh, sorry, James Palotta's uh, investment there. So again, these are just some numbers I saw, and, and, and you can correct me where I'm completely off or, or wherever you can comment on. So it, what I read is sort of, you know, he bought 67 or 70% of uh, equity in it, maybe at about 70, 80 million euro, depends on which report I'm looking at. Um, but in total, Within a few years, then um, the total investment was about 160 million, including you know cleaning up debt and, and other maybe older obligations. So again, you know, fairly significant investment, even for a billionaire, um, and had a lot of big plans, right? Uh, you know, you don't just take over a European a big four European club, and, and as Roma in, in Italy is is a significant club, being in the obviously capital um versus you know the intern the intern the ac milan boys there and juventus there which are the other big boys of course um you know they they aren't quite at that same level haven't really won that many but i you know from the stories i read the plans were huge right including a new stadium and really driving the value from again the numbers i saw they the uh there was a valuation i think in the in 2016 of about you know 300 to 250 million dollars but you know the big picture was always about this could be a multi-billion dollar club 
So, you know, talk us a bit through you coming in there um, at the beginning, I guess, uh, you know, in the office in Austin, and then I'm assuming moving up to, to Rome uh, to run the club as a CEO. Uh, you know, tell us a bit about those stories. Well, so, yeah, let me unpack that a little bit. So as far as the financials go, it's uh, the club is publicly traded. So um, I won't comment on the financials. You can you can look through the right. accounts, right? They're there. They're there for everyone to see. Um, was it, it was public already at that time too, or yes, it was public. Ah, and right. and it was a Marcus, public it was, it was, it was often humorous where like, if you had to make a personal change, like in the front office, like if you were swapping out the controller or, you know, um, you know, a senior accountant or something, they'd say, well, wait till the market's closed. <laughs> I'd be like, come on, man. <laughs> like, you know, like we're okay. I think like, this is, you know, this isn't uh, earth shattering, but, um, but yes, we were publicly, publicly traded. Okay. And so that was All the right. first time I ran a publicly traded company and, and it was, yeah. um, um, it's really, you know, it is very different running a public mm. charity company. Um, I think there are some things there that are positives in terms of the amount of rigor it puts into a organization, uh, into mm. an organization, because you simply, you know, you're accountable uh, in a much different way to a large group of shareholders. Um, at the same time, it adds a lot of complexity and, uh, and can be frustrating um, because you're, you know, your ability to do, your ability to operate strategically um, with, uh, without sharing your plans with the marketplace, uh, is limited in a publicly traded company because you have to, right. you know, you have to lay out what you're doing all the time. Yeah, um, yeah. so, um, so the, yeah, yeah the project, it, the project it had, uh, uh there was a lot of am ambition to it for sure. Um, there, ha there was over the course of, uh, of the five years that, that I was there, I did two as the CEO and then three running the stadium project. We started working on stadium almost immediately, um, back mm -hmm. in, uh, in 11. And, uh, um, and you know, the club, um, it, it, listen, let's start with a basic principle. Every club is a selling club, right? I think right. We, we have a belief that, you know, the biggest clubs are buying clubs and they certainly are, but everybody's selling. And so, you know, a portion of your financial stability is dependent on your ability to develop clubs. I mean, excuse me, to develop players. The players, yeah. You talk about selling players, right? Yeah. And so, so, you know, that was a part of our business model. Um, we had some, some issues with Stadio Olimpico, uh, great building, um, but uh, very outdated for the modern era of what you'd want has a, has a running track in it. So that complicates matters. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, Rome is, uh, Rome is a political environment for sure. Um, and so, you know, the fan base was hugely passionate, amazing, love the fans of Roma. I mean, they were, um, uh, they were very, very special. And, uh, and so they had very high expectations as well. Uh, so complex environment for sure. And, and, you know, we started on the state, so we were, we were, uh, a good buying club from buying talent. We had Walter Sabatini as the director of football, did a great job um, uh, during the period when I was uh, CEO there. Um, I wanted to focus on the stadium project. So, um, you know, when we went in as an investment group, um, when Jim went in as an investment group, again, he went in as a limited passive investor. So if you fast forward then, you know, six months and he's running the club, um, I hadn't seen my role as being a long-term role as CEO. So there was, again, a cleanup and a turnaround. There was a lot of work that needed to be done to, um, to modernize some of the practices at the club. And I think that happens anytime you have mm -hmm. a, a, a club where you've had stable ownership for a couple of decades that, um, you know, unless they're, unless it's a very cutting edge business and a lot of them are these days, but, you know, go back a decade and uh, uh, many more weren't. Than are today, and uh, it needed to be a 
updated. So I did the updating piece, the clean, the cleanup. And then, um, as we got into the turnaround piece, um, we hired in Italo Zanzi as CEO and I pivoted to run the stadium project. Right. Now, again, you know, reading it, reading up a bit about it, you know, Raptor Group obviously is involved in tons of businesses, including real estate and, and other things. And I'm assuming again, as, as an American investor, he's looking at, you know, Rome being this, you know, big metropolitan city um, and all the things you can do, especially with a new stadium, uh, I guess, in a certain part of the city. Um, again, very easy to see from the you know big picture point of view how that could work and how that would dramatically increase the value of the club because the club didn't own the stadium, right? It was shared with you know, another team in, in Rome with Lazio. So right. again, it's sort of a bit of this weird um, Italian mix, which you know you have in, in Milan as well. There, you know, Inter and AC sharing it, and uh, you know, and Jeff Slack uh, explained that already a bit before. Was it? Were you guys there at the same time? Was it sort of overlapping your period and his period? Or uh, no, you know, I I fallen on years after after Jeff had been there. Um, oh, right, yeah. I, I can Jeff, remember when he was there. Um, yeah, I, I, I consider Jeff a great great friend, fellow. Uh, a fellow Bostonian, and uh, um, we've uh, we've crisscrossed over time. We spent a bunch of time together in the UK. He is uh, an elite operator, and look, all you have to do is watch what he's doing with the uh, with that F1 team. I mean, um, yeah, yeah, he's it's, it's, ama it's amazing in such a short period of time the turnaround, uh, the impact Absolutely. he's had. Really proud of him. Yeah. But uh, you know, coming back to yours here, so again, you know, let's talk about that stadium project because you know, again, just to to preempt already. Um, after all the work you guys put in there um, to get this up and running, um, it's been delayed. It was delayed several times, uh, and, and, and I'm sure. And, and I'd love to hear a bit your thoughts on that. Um, and until you know the latest I could see here, you know February this year, um, it was completely canceled, or they called it halted. Uh, was the words uh, they used? Now that maybe means it's it's done and busted now. But uh, you know, so you know, I'd love to. The, the great opportunity is so now to do this bit retrospectively, right? When you were in there and you were setting it up, again, it made all the sense in the world. And now in hindsight, you know, again, it, it obviously didn't. Where, what do you think happened and and sort of unpack that a little bit for us? So I think we, we tried to take a, uh, an approach that was um, that was fairly uh, unique in, uh, in the environment that is, um, that is uh, you know, ro uh, Rome and Roman politics, Roman uh, business. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when we first started to put the project together, uh, you know, I was offered on several different occasions. Oh, we'll set up lunch with, uh, you know, over a course of a month, we'll set up lunch with the, you know, the biggest developers in, in, um, in the city. And, um, and you can decide which one you want to work with and look through you know, the, the, the portfolio of available land they have and so forth. And we didn't want to take that approach because we felt it would be better to be, um, there was a big project. We better be transparent from the outset. So we actually put out a request for proposal for, uh, with the specifications on what we needed for land. And, mm -hmm. um, and that was really transparent. And I think the initial pushback was, oh, well, there's not a lot of land available in Rome. Well, we had uh, over 90 uh, responses that actually fit the criteria. We had more that didn't well, uh, fit the criteria, but we had, we had 90. And then it allowed us to then go and engage with uh, City Hall right away mm -hmm. and, and say, okay, um, you know, we've gone through and we've, we've culled it down to about a dozen. Um, take us through this dozen and let us know which you believe from a political standpoint um an environmental standpoint you know a commercial standpoint a transportation standpoint which ones you would consider viable and which ones um that would be dead on arrival 
right. as proposals. And that got us down to, um, to about uh, a half dozen. We were then mm-hmm. able to, um, you know, overlay, uh, some metrics on ancillary development around them. And that got us down to, uh, to just a handful, three or four. Mm-hmm. And then we were able to basically right. run a, a, an auction scenario against those three and four selected a piece of land. Um, and then just started working on a comprehensive proposal, put together a just, dynamic just a, Sorry, Mark, yeah. to jump in for a second. Give me a sense of the timing here. This is taking months or weeks or years where we're dealing with. Yeah, no, your, this, you is, know, this is, this is, uh, uh, this is months months okay um, so it's a reasonable speed to it that's good right and uh and so we had um uh we and then you know stadia development in north america is really um quite sophisticated uh this is about 2013 very sophisticated then more sophisticated now but uh we're yeah. able to reach out and say let's grab you know a world-class stadium architect let's go and get um, a great project management team put together. Let's make sure we tap, um, you know, uh, international security specialists. Um, and so we were able to put together uh, um, a really robust group, put together a dossier and um, and submitted it for municipal approval and actually received municipal approval in 207 days. And, oh, um, nice. and, and yeah, and what had so at that time that all looked good um and then so yeah, that's great. now it obviously then then it's sort of i guess some you know you, you obviously left and and you moved on and we'll, we'll get to that later what you were doing but uh you know looking at again from the outside and, and i'm assuming you always probably you know paid a bit of attention to what's sure. happening to the venue uh, what's your reading on it you know what what is your reading on where it all went a bit pear shape i think you know i think a, uh, a view on a market is very important and italy as a as a country, you know, as a macro market in Rome, as a, as a specific locality, um, in, you have to look at the specific characteristics of that market. And, and in Rome, um, certainly momentum is hugely important. And we had a lot of momentum early on in that project. Um, mm-hmm. I think that historically in Italy and in Rome, if projects start to lose momentum and start to stall, a group thing starts to take over and say, oh, well, you know, that's this is going to be another one that didn't happen, um, and uh, and I actually I did you know I did the project for the first three years I got us through the design development stage the initial set of approvals and so forth, um, and uh, um, I, I came back to the states uh, on a full time basis, so um, I had been commuting to Rome um, for five years on a back and forth I'd spend the summers there take my family over but I was doing it um, on a very much on a on on a commuting basis and it was pretty okay. punishing um but, and and a lot of that was because when the project started in rome uh you know our view at raptor accelerator was we'll always have um a short-term role and the short-term role just kept rolling on and rolling on so i came back to the states i don't know what happened from a momentum standpoint um i think as you noted um uh, they had some setbacks uh, and ultimately, I think when it was sold to the new ownership group, the Friedkin group, they decided after the amount of time that had gone on and uh, some of the issues around uh, further approvals or final approvals, I'm really not that sure um, that they would not pursue the project. But Yeah, and, and you mentioned that, that the club was recently sold, right? Uh, so That's I right. guess that was happened before that. Um, and I, again, I, I didn't read about it uh, 
you know, did you think he made his money back or, or what was the sort of, what's the report, report? Well, it's a public listed company. So you, you know, what, what are the reported numbers out there? Do you know them by any chance? Or? You know, I don't. And, and, and honestly, um, it was a very complex financing structure. Um, I wouldn't want to comment. I, you know, I left in 16, the club got sold in 21. So sure, or 20, sure. a lot yeah. can happen. It's between, been a while. Yeah. A lot can happen between then. So I wouldn't want to comment on that. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Excellent. Well, interesting. Uh, like I said, you know, it, it's it's one of those typical stories. Um, you know, European football isn't that is isn't that simple as we as we know. And so let, let's let's talk a bit about ESL, the European Super League here. You know, on everyone's radar, the whole of the week lasted for in, in real fact, I guess, forty eight hours. Right? I mean, there was plenty of rumors before what was going on and what's going to come, but uh, I think the, the the real count is forty eight hours, which isn't very long uh, by any stretch of man. Imagination. Um, here is would be my simple interpretation without belaboring points, which been you know communicated over and over already the whole week. And that is, you know, you have a group of very very powerful teams uh, and team owners. Um, many of them are American, and therefore I argue have a certain view of the world of how the OMS works, uh, as closed leaks are the thing. Um, and then you have, of course, you know, others there who all see the opportunity to build something different and unique and and on a piece of paper with you in the, on the club side, I can make all the logic and I can argue, you know, all the things that we're doing made sense to me. Then of course you have that European uh, nism part to it. And, you know, being German, I can say that uh, where things aren't always as simple as that, as it sounds like, um, you know, and, and this whole collective, you know, the idea of just having a small collective group of, of teams controlling everything versus, you know, the opportunity of relegation and, and the small clubs having a chance to make it up and all the, you know, fun stuff, which comes with that. Um, clearly there was a, I would call it to some degree culture clash, even though you could argue it was maybe somewhat heavily driven out of, out of uh, Madrid there. Um, but I think, you know, so again, being an American, having worked across the world here, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, what do you think happened there and, and, you know, the learning on the back of it. It's been fascinating. Um, <laughs> to say the least. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's an easy way to lead in on this. Um, well, let's take a step back, right? Um, so clearly as an American, um, um, I, I, I've, I've watched, uh, you know, the vitriol focused, uh, on the American owners there. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, well, I would say it's well-deserved. I'd also say that, that the group, let's just go through the group that was, um, that composed the super league. Um, if you take individuals or, or the entity like a sporting club, like Barca or, or Real, and we go through and say, okay, if someone has 30%, um, what would the nationality break, break down? You know, what did it break down for, for the ownership? Um, we had, uh, two English at Spurs. We had, uh, we had the Italians, we had, uh, three Spanish, we had two Chinese, we had Russians, we had Emiratis, we had Israeli, and we had four Americans. So, um, it was a very international mix. I think, um, the lightning rod certainly was the aspect of the closed part of the league. Um, cause yeah. there was supposed to be, I guess, one quarter of the participants would rotate through. Um, right. so, so we had, we had a few things here. We had, I think a group of owners from the most traditional biggest European clubs yep. saying to the entire group, you know, the Italians, the Spanish, no, this is going to work. Don't worry about it. It's going to work. Uh, we can do a closed league. And I think you had follow on from the Americans, the Emiratis, the Russians, Chinese saying, okay, well, if you guys say it'll work, 
let's give it a go. We'll come along for the ride. Yeah. And, um, and so, so right there, I just think structurally, I think you had a mismatch in people's ability to appreciate from the far East all the way to the U S and West, um, you know, all of the intricacies that you, you noted initially. So I think that's the first thing I think we had a, we had a a disconnect. Mm. The second thing is there was no infrastructure for the league, right? That, yep. that there were, you know, you had 12 teams, but it was shown with the way they tried to roll out the announcements. There were no guiding principles. There were no, um, um, there was no staff in place to handle, um, you know, putting together the operational issues. Like, how was that? Uh, uh, there never seemed to have been a, an, a chief executive or someone like that who really was the leader of it, right? I mean, at yeah. least I didn't see it. No, that that did not that did not exist, and so yeah. um, um, they had no media deals in place, and they had no one in place to do the media deals. Okay, so there was there was no, you know, there was there was just missing so much infrastructure at, at the at the outset. Um, certainly, the closed aspect of the league is uh, is fraught with um, um, uh, I don't know, let me call it hubris, right? Because uh, promotion and relegation are, you know, the the uh, the connective tissue. Across all uh, all football leagues, really yeah, in the world, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, except, and especially in Europe, for sure, for sure. And so, um, so you have, you know, you just so that's the platform that we're dealing with on the start, right? You had mm. no infrastructure, you had um, no staffing, you had no media partner, you were looking to, you had no articulated plan for. Um, how you were going to have qualification, leaving the 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 rest of Europe up for um, up for a single uh, five you know five five individual slots to come in and play in a single year. So I think it was, I think it was um, it was ill fated at, at the outset. Uh, and then I think uh, I would be important to turn to um, uh, uh, the rollout because I think the rollout was fairly fairly disastrous. From a process standpoint, um, I think that the 12 clubs in the Super League breakaway made a a very significant strategic mistake in that they gave themselves a false deadline. Mm. So they were clearly concerned that UEFA was going to announce you know, an expanded and uh, adjusted format for the Champions League, uh, the expansion of 36 teams, plus more qualifying matches on the way in, you know, a broader footprint, more, more matches, more revenue, and, uh, and all ahead of uh, a new TV, a new media deal, set of media deals in 2024. Yep. And so there was this scramble all of a sudden to, you know, preempt that with, um, with a Super League announcement. But I just come back to why. Why did they have to do that? In fact, what they could have done was made statements that say, you know, we've always supported the Champions League. We're not sure about this expansion. We don't necessarily agree with it or believe in it. We think that there needs to be broader structural change, whatever. They could have said a million things, um, but gone along with it. And then let's fast forward a year. So you're in 2022. The media deals for 2024 have not um have you know negotiations have certainly haven't concluded by then although they may have they may have begun at, at the early stages and yep. you run a year of the new champions league and uh, you've taken that year to build infrastructure right identify staff maybe even bring in some staff 
um, uh, that are going to be working on, you know, Project X, whatever, have a proper lead media partner in place or, a, you know, a handful of media partners that you're deep in conversations with. Um, uh, make sure you have your narrative right. There was no, then we'll talk about the narrative yeah. in a second. But um, and, 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 and the, the part we, we said earlier already that there was no one truly looking at was the true leader of the pack, right? right. Maybe it was a president. I mean, you know, the one who seemed to at the end made the most, uh, you know, state public statements, obviously was the, the president from, uh, from, you know, Real Madrid there. But he was, at the end of it, he just one out of 12, right? He wasn't clearly the appointed leader of, of it. And so to me, that's interesting. Now, I can only guess one thing is that no one in our industry were ready to take that job on, you know, unless you would have thrown a lot of money at someone probably. Uh, because I think if anyone I spoke to in our industry, honestly, didn't see it come and didn't see how this would be successful. You know, everyone who knew a bit about it from, you know, Phil Lyons, obviously, you know, the Premier League as well as anyone and others in, in you know, who I work with. We we're all we, we were literally counting down the days that, that it would fall apart, and it did, right? And I'm not saying we we, we could foresee that, but it, it was just so obvious that there was so much wrong with it and, and the complete lack of thinking there and, and and you wonder because from what i hear is that you know P bcg was was one of their consultants right who probably put the mm -hmm. whole thing together you know you have you have uh, jp morgan there as again mm -hmm. again publicly announcing that they would fund it or, or put some money behind it and backing it and, and everyone in book again goes well they wouldn't do this if there wasn't some revenue streams against it right they wouldn't just fund a blind leak uh, hoping that there was money there one day and so so all those things just didn't make any sense right it's just i mean again coming back you know you, you work at a bank you know how what the heck was jp morgan thinking <laughs> yeah, I can't speak to what J.P. Morgan was thinking, uh, but uh, but I agree with uh, I, I agree with the thought that that certainly if you're going to put up um, look if you're going to you know the own line of a bank is you know own a bank um, uh, you know ten thousand dollars it's your problem owe a bank ten million dollars is their problem owe yep. a bank a hundred million dollars it's everyone's problem right. And so yeah, and it um, was 3.5 billion. So that was yeah. a much <laughs> so, so, so <laughs> that's the, collective problem. Yeah, that's a collective problem. But also it just signals that there had to be um there had to be some type of asset base uh that they was gonna take as security against it. And I understand right. it could have been against future revenues, but those future revenues were clearly gonna be media revenues. Um yep. and and it it's certainly uh, there certainly seems to be pieces of information that we don't have at this point. I would also say that the lack of a narrative on the rollout. So, you know, the midnight media announcement followed by a vacuum, nothing, nothing, no information laid out by the league allowed, you know, um, uh, Frank, frankly, uh, from a demographic standpoint, uh, more senior pundits. So media of a, of a fairly older age, over 50, to step in and just vent outrage. They were outraged, everyone was outraged, and there was no counter to that at all. There was no focus they, they on They didn't the seem to have even a PR agency in place to, to deal with it. I mean, it's yeah, just, it's, I mean, it's, there, there's it's some, a bunch of rookie mistakes if you look at it, right? I mean, yeah. as, as clever as all the people are working in these in these clubs, right? And, and many of we know and, and are friends, but 
I, I, as I said, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to get someone on a podcast here to, to actually give us a bit of the insight for what happens from the other side here, because yeah, like I said, we're missing still pl plenty of info. Um, but it did, it was a, you know, complete uh, PR disaster from top to bottom. Right. I, I'm sure you read, you saw the, uh, John Henry's public apology, right. Um, his, his video, his clip there, and you know, he's, he's definitely eating some humble pie there. Uh, I would argue. I, I think that, that, you know, um, the uh, the window on this particular version of a new competition has closed, and it seems that there are being regulatory steps to prevent a future competition from um, being formed. You know, as far back as I remember in 2004, sitting in um, um, in Hotel de Ville, so City Hall in Paris, uh, mm -hmm. speaking with the vice mayor for sports, a gentleman named Pascal Cherki, and um, and he was saying as far back as then, there was talk of a Super League. He was saying, yeah, of course. saying, look, you know, we still have to provide certificates of occupancy at the stadia. We have to make sure at a national level that the referees are being licensed. Like, we're just not going to do things that are going to destroy our domestic leagues. So, you know, there was always going to be a headwind on something like this happening. That said... Mm -hmm. There is two things. One is there is a Champions League, so there is an international competition, Correct. right? And so, the, so the ability yep. for there to be an international competition always exists because there has been one. And then the second thing is the underlying issues here um, around the modernization of football. Um, okay, the Super League collapsed spectacularly, but those issues have not gone away. Right. You have massive clubs that have uh, huge highly sophisticated stadia, they have massive fan bases, they have international footprints. Um, they are of a, from a different planet than a club that, you know, makes it into the top division with a 20,000 seat stadia that's, you know, hasn't been upgraded in decades. And, uh, and the, and the entire size of the, you know, of the market that that club sits in is, you know, hundred or 150,000 people or sometimes even less. And so yeah. that type of disparity, that mismatch is still there and it's only going to continue to grow. So yeah. um, we're going to be revisiting. I'm not saying the super league again, but we're going to be revisiting these issues. We're going to have to revisit these issues for the health of the game. Uh, one thing I thought that was really interesting, um, a morning consult poll that came out a couple of days after the league had collapsed had said, basically, under 44, from an age standpoint, um, mm -hmm. almost 60% were not opposed and about a quarter were fully supportive. Uh, and that's with no narrative. That's with with no no ability to focus on fans in terms of the rollout. I mean, imagine if you had just said, we're going to we're gonna be making so much in media money. Why don't we take a portion of the of the revenue and offset it against subsidize significantly lower ticket prices and 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 sell, you know, 5,000 seats a match mandate, 5,000 seats a match going to families. <clears throat> All of a sudden, you would have immediately changed the narrative on this. People would have said, wait, I can bring my young, my young children to see the biggest clubs and these, and, you know, ticket, uh, ticket prices I, are capped. It's pretty anything. clear there was no PR or, or marketing strategy. That, that's yeah. pretty obvious, right? Yep. There was a big picture idea, and I'm sure that was, again, reasonably well thought through to some degree, right? You, you hire consultants and others to do this. Um, I think there wasn't a real reality check to it as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the other thing, and this is sort of what I, sort of the way I looked at it is, um, every, you know, and the, as you rightly said, this has been going around. Anyone who watches or follows European football in the last 20 years, every 
I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years, you have the same thing pop up in some form or fashion, right? It's not the first time and it comes out of different quarters, uh, you know, uh, and occasionally Italians tried this before as well. There, I'm trying to remember the name of the gentleman who did it at that time. Uh, now, it, again, the, the reason why it happens is really simple. UEFA is a monopoly in a sense, right? Um, mm-hmm. you, you know, you, you're part of that larger ecosystem but you have very little bargaining power, right? So I look at what Ferrari does every every few years when they when the Concord Agreement comes up, right? They go and I'm not going to play, I'm not going to, you know, I'll pull out, and that's they get a better deal because you want Ferrari in F1. Same thing here, right? These big clubs have very little leverage with UEFA in a sense until they start, you know, coming over these things, so that it maybe wasn't a means to an end. Who knows? Um, you know. Uh, you know, we don't know, you know, because someone might still go, hey, you know what, it all worked, right? The trick worked, maybe, you know, they got what they wanted, which was, you know, larger, larger piece of the pie in whatever form or shape um, or other concessions, which were maybe made again behind closed doors, which, you know, you haven't heard of yet. So, uh, so who knows? But, you know, you can see why the clubs are doing it and why, like you said, this will come back again, you know, whether it takes five years or, 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 or shorter or longer, who knows, but you know, that debate will continue. Um, you know, I'm sure they'll learn a few things from this, uh, when they, if they ever come back in what fashion it maybe is, um, or who knows, you know, UEFA's Champions League, which for all intents and purposes is an amazing league, you know, generates billions of dollars for the sport. Um, so it's not about this, the league is poorly run, right? It's a very successful league. And I, I had people on the podcast who've been part of this and helped build it. And, and, you know, by all, you know, again, we're talking billions and billions of dollars being generated, uh, you know, one of the biggest IP in the world. Um, can you still make it better? Sure, right? Uh, but it's almost like saying, let's dismantle the NBA because, you know, there are too many clubs now and let's shrink it down and, and really only focus on the big teams. That's literally what, what they're almost trying to do here, right? You know, and uh, and so uh, so I think it, it, it was a bit crazy from the start and, you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll continue watching a bit more about it. So uh, I don't know if you have any last thought on it and when we'll move on to some other more fun topics yeah. here. Just uh, the only uh, yeah, the only two thoughts are are one is um, um, never underestimate the value of good operators. Right? that that at the end of the day, um, you know, the 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 sports organizations over the last fifteen years that have created the most value competitively and financially um, have been the ones that are the best operators. And in a lot of ways, and uh, and that's going to continue. And then the second thing is the underlying issues haven't changed. So, um, so I think there needs to be, you know, uh, some way to address them. I'm not necessarily advocating for, you know, a Super League Two by any means. I'm just saying that uh, that uh, just because this failed spectacularly doesn't mean that the um, uh, that the underlying metrics were cured by by the fan revolt to push back against it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And and you know we, we you know next time when we get we get Michael in here as well, uh, well you know, since he worked with FIFA, you know what yeah. FIFA is doing there was their extended World Cup now with forty eight teams. I, mean, I think it's there is a point in time it, it's too much. Um, you know where you do want the real quality rather than just adding and adding. And 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 FIFA is a bad example of that in my view. But anyway, we don't want to go there now because I want to come back to you know really you know what you were doing here. I would say the last few years since uh, you know you you left Rome. 
Um, you started your own business again, I believe, uh, Union Sports, uh, if I if I yep. see this correctly, right? Yes. Private consulting group there. Um, so I want to hear a bit about what you're doing there, and of course, you know, current your current uh, company in a market media. You know, all, how the, these pieces are all connected, and then uh, we'll wrap it up with a little bit of Vancouver Whitecap story here. So talk okay. talk us through the rest here. So so Union Sports was. Uh, um, was a shop we set up a consultancy to help people rationalize uh, typically um, sports property uh, people who have some equity stake in sports properties uh, and that doesn't necessarily just mean clubs or teams or tours it could be media companies technology companies um, mm -hmm. people who own stadia whatever um, they tend to have holdings in a bunch of different uh, a bunch of different entities some they control outright some they may have a limited passive investment in, and it was to help them um, on rationalize that and pull together, you know, all these assets into tight, uh, tight organizing businesses and uh, tightly organized businesses. And, um, and uh, so we did that for so, about four. So, yeah. So give me a couple of examples of who do you guys work with, if you can mention them. Um, we try ne never to talk about uh, individual, um, individual clients. I just think that a lot, of, it's all, these are all, privately held concerns. And I just think that the, what we found is our ability to operate effectively for people. Um, discretion is a big part of it. And, um, right. okay. and, right. and so, um, you know, we're known for that. And so that's something that we employed when I was at union and then we employ here now at, uh, at Intermarket, although Intermarket is, a uh, is, a uh, is a newer version. I, um, I wound down union sports and went up to Van Vancouver for the Whitecaps, uh, in January of 2020, and mm -hmm. um, uh, we had Just some very significant, all hell broke loose. <laughs> yeah, we had some very significant plans. It was again, it was a stadium, it was a massive rebuild. The club had been um, had been struggling in the prior season. That's well documented. Um, some of the issues that it had, um, and ownership uh, made a commitment to uh, turn the club around, and that's what I do: right? cleanups and turnarounds. So I went up there and I spent. Um, I spent about six months uh, getting the club, um, uh, you know, its relationships with its fan base and the marketplace rehabilitated uh, a lot of uh, internal cleanup and so forth. Um, but when the pandemic hit, Marcus, about uh, eight weeks into my tenure there, the reality was the big project that I was brought on for was not going to happen. Um, right. for, so they, for this, so they were time. also looking to build a stadium or what was it you mentioned? It was that, one of the things I was working on for sure, you know, that right. uh, we were looking at. And then, um, so I did six months for them and uh, um, my project ended um, and came back to Austin and launched Intermarket Media. Now, the term Intermarket is uh, uh, in North American sports, you have your Intermarket, which is, the 75 miles uh, around your stadium and then the outer market, which can be, you know, up to 150 or more and the most valuable rights here in market rights. And so we formed right. intermarket media and we okay. do two things. We do consultancy uh, as we did with the union. Um, and we also we're doing content creation because uh, what I found is that um, if you're creating some content that focuses on the business of sport, um, you allow potential um, clients, um, or people you'll be negotiating against to 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 take a uh, a look at the way you operate, the approach, your methodology, um, and we found it to be it's been very creative. Interesting, yeah. So that, again, it is it's fairly new, and that you you could argue this is really uh, 
coming out of in the middle of COVID is when you started this year. So, uh, you know, how have you seen this affecting um, dealing with the industry? Because I'm assuming from the sound of it, it is very much focused on the U.S. market, right? For now, um, of what you're doing there. No, in, in, uh, in fact, no. in fact, actually, um, so, okay. so on, on a, uh, I believe there's a great intersection of um, of opportunity that sits uh, really transatlantic. And right, so, okay. um, so we really try and focus on on both markets. So the content we produce, for example, we produce the OTT Sports a video series. You can find it on our Intermarket Media uh, website. You can see it on YouTube uh, and so forth. That really focuses on sports from um, uh, professional sports from uh, North America and also the UK and Europe. Right, and okay. and and the contrast there. My my uh, my co-host in that, Michael Broughton, is a uh, is a longtime sports industry professional uh, operator and investor based out of London. And so mm. um, we tend to crack issues um, that are happening uh, that affect either market or both markets uh, simultaneously. So it gives us a good, yep. good perspective. Yeah, I've seen you guys. Uh, I've listened to a couple of the, the podcasts which you have has up there. So you got this sort of short uh, topical uh, podcast. And then, of course, you all, you guys are now on Clubhouse as well uh, with the OTT Sports Speakeasy. I believe yep. that. that's what it's called, right? Yep, so yep, the Speakeasy. Uh, let's give a quick shout out to that. When are, when are you guys hosting that? Every week at, when <laughs> we, host it? It on th- we host it on Thursdays, uh, 5 o'clock in the UK, noon, in um in the east coast of the u.s and 9 a.m on the west coast and you know good things happen in speakeasies so we try we like the clubhouse platform it allows people to join us and um you know if you tune in uh, you get the opportunity to put your hand up and come right up and, and and talk with the professionals we typically break that show into um a, a breaking news section then um we do a single interview our locked in interview with someone and then we'll bring other people other industry professionals into a round table with that person. And, uh, and then we open it up for a full robust conversation. And we've had some great yeah. guests in there and we're able to talk pretty in depth uh, on the business aspects of it. You know, um, you know, you won't hear us talking about is such and such a player worth such and such a transfer fee, uh, etc. That's just, yeah, you can find that anywhere. The, cor- the corporate side. Yeah. 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 We drill in the business. Yeah, no, and I, I joined you guys on, on one of a few weeks. Yes, back. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, even, what was the topic exactly? Was it NFTs maybe even? Or no, we were talking, we were talking, we were talking um, glad it was memorable for you, Marcus. <laughs> we, were talk- <laughs> we were, we were talking uh, esports. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we thought East was my other favorite topic. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm doing too many of these things, and, and all this stuff sometimes becomes a bit of a blur. Um, but now, look, yeah, I encourage everyone there to to join you guys. Now, the weird thing is, and, and maybe you tell me, why is Clubhouse only on on the on an iPhone? I mean, they, you know, it just cuts out you know a huge chunk of the world, including myself. I had to use my son's phone to even yeah. just join you there. I mean, it just seems to be a bit of a weird strategy. You know, uh, I mean, I can understand from a tech platform standpoint that you know, uh, you only have to get it right one time on the um, on the iPhone platform, right? Like, right. you know, there's only it's a you know there's only one set of variables you have to sort for, so you can launch something much more predictably. So apps tend to roll out first for an iPhone, but the reality is globally, about over 80% of all the phones are Android. Exactly, or Android. Um, so, just, uh, it, so it is very yeah. confining, it is very confining. Um, although if I was to say to a group of developers, you know, there you have native Android, which is, uh, uh, which is, you know, the Google products themselves, the pixels and so yep. forth. And then you have anybody from, you know, 
Samsung on on down, they all require uh, specific modifications to their tech stack um, on Android. And so um, rollouts tend to happen on, on iPhone, but it does miss a huge part of the market. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it will happen. And I like it. I think it's an interesting platform. Of course, others are now copying Skype and uh, here and a few others are, are as usual, uh, seeing what's working. And uh, but yeah, good luck with it. Uh, sounds like Thank a you. fun, fun place to be and hanging out there. And, you know, we had a good fun hour here as well, touching on a few things, uh, you know, comparing some notes and stories here. So Mark, I wish you a great uh, Sunday morning there in, in Austin. You, Stay safe, um, and as we say in those times here, and uh, yeah, we'll keep watching these industries together, and I'm sure we'll be talking a few more times, uh, maybe together there on Clubhouse. Yeah, I hope so. Listen, uh, I would say to your audience as a, as a final thing, we are headed into a, um, to a wild expansion period for sports. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be linear growth, you know, with the line going from the lower left-hand part of the chart up to the top right corner, um, you know, steady gains. Um, there's going to be... Uh, some dips as we go, but this is an expansionist era. We as industry professionals are dealing with uh, a, a product that uh, people need to tune into when it's happening. And, uh, and so it is very, um, uh, we talked earlier about audience erosion. It is very audience erosion proof in a lot of ways. And, uh, and so I'd say to everyone out there, you know, Take heart. Um, this is a tough period. We're going to, you know, there's going to be some more punches thrown at us, I think, as we go forward. But if you look back a decade from now, I think the level of expansion you're going to see in this industry as it melds and becomes more of a media industry um, is uh, uh, in a gaming industry, in a gambling industry, um, I think is just the, the growth is going to be breathtaking. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we'll, I'm sure it will, you know, you guys are, you and Michael covering lots of those stuff and we'll have more conversations on that. And, you know, whether it's spec, the spec world, which of course is again, bringing a whole new level of uh, money now into the, into sport again. And, and I'm working with a couple of people there. The NFT world is fascinating mm -hmm. as, as anything with, you know, what the NBA is doing and of course others around the world. And, and you had a bit of esports and gaming and, and, and other, you know, the crypto world is, is, dramatically moving in now i've seen a couple of crypto deals again crypto.com just announced a deal with aston martin so uh there is new money coming in but it, it looks very different um and it definitely feels very different right uh, as the pandemic isn't quite uh coming that to a close yet right i mean thailand is just shutting down again here so these second third waves in many countries are still happening and so i think we're yeah, we're still in there a bit for a riot, um, but we're going to be hanging in there and, and keep adding our value to it wherever we can. Looking forward to it, Marcus. Thank you so much Definitely. for having me on. It's been a great Mark, honor. Thank you it. and enjoyed it. Talk to you soon. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.